India. The Zen monks were not only democratic, they were willing to employ themselves in all the practical ways of life. They were thus economically minded as well as politically minded. In metaphysics, Zen absorbed much of Taoist teachings modified by Buddhist speculations. But in its practical conduct of life, it completely ignored both the Taoist transcendentalism and the Indian aloofness from productive life. When a Zen master was asked what his future life would be, he unhesitatingly answered, let me be a donkey or a horse and work for the villagers. Another departure from the older pattern of monkish brotherhood, whether Christian or Buddhist or anything else, was that the Zen monks were not always engaged in offering prayers, practicing penance, or performing other so-called deeds of piety, nor in reading or reciting the canonical books, discussing their contents, or studying them under the Master individually or collectively. What the Zen monks did, besides attending to various practical affairs, both manual and menial, was to listen to the Master's occasional sermons, which were short and cryptic, and to ask questions and get answers. The answers, however, were bizarre and full of incomprehensibles, and they were quite frequently accompanied by direct actions. I will cite one of such examples, perhaps an extreme one, though it did not take place between master and monk, but between monks themselves. It will illustrate the spirit of Zen which prevailed in its earlier days toward the end of the Tang dynasty in the ninth century. A monk coming out of the monastery that was under the leadership of Rinzai met a party of three traveling monks belonging to another Buddhist school, and one of the three ventured to question the Zen monk. How deep is the river of Zen? The reference to the river arose from their encounter taking place on a bridge. The Zen monk, fresh from his own interview with Rinzai, who was noted for his direct action, lost no time in replying. Find out for yourself, he said, and offered to throw the questioner from the bridge but fortunately his two friends interceded and pleaded for mercy, which saved the situation. Zen is not necessarily against words, but it is well aware of the fact that they are always liable to detach themselves from realities and turn into conceptions. And this conceptualization is what Zen is against. The Zen monk just cited may be an extreme case, but the spirit is there. Zen insists on handling the thing itself and not an empty abstraction. It is for this reason that Zen neglects reading or reciting the sutras, the collection of sermons given by the Buddha, or engaging in discourses on abstract subjects. And this is a cause of Zen's appeal to men of action in the broadest sense of the term. Through their practical mindedness, the Chinese people and also to a certain extent the Japanese have taken greatly to Zen. Zen is discipline in enlightenment. Enlightenment means emancipation, and emancipation is no less than freedom. We talk very much these days about all kinds of freedom, political, economic, and otherwise, but these freedoms are not at all real. As long as they are on the plane of relativity, the freedoms or liberties we glibly talk about are far from being such. The real freedom is the outcome of enlightenment. When someone realizes this, in whatever situation they may find themselves, they are always free in their inner life. Zen is the religion of Jiyu, or self-reliance, and Jizai, self-being. Enlightenment occupies the central point of teaching in all schools of Buddhism, Hinayana and Mahayana, self-power and other power, the holy path and the pure land. 
because the Buddhist teachings all start from his enlightenment experience about 2,500 years ago in the northern part of India. Every Buddhist is, therefore, expected to receive enlightenment either in this world or in one of his future lives. Without enlightenment, either already realized or to be realized somehow and sometime and somewhere, there will be no Buddhism. Zen is no exception. In fact, it is Zen that makes most of enlightenment, or Satori, called Wu in Chinese. To realize Satori, Zen opens for us two ways in general, verbal and actional. First, Zen verbalism is quite characteristic of Zen, though it is so completely differentiated from the philosophy of linguistics or dialectics that it may not be correct to apply the term verbalism to Zen at all. But as we all know, we human beings cannot live without language, for we are so made that we can sustain our existence only in group life. Love is the essence of humanity. Love needs something to bestow itself upon. Human beings must live together in order to lead a life of mutual love. Love to be articulate requires a means of communication, which is language. Inasmuch as Zen is one of the most significant human experiences, one must resort to language to express it to others as well as to oneself. But Zen verbalism has its own features, which violate all the rules of the science of linguistics. In Zen, experience and expression are one. Zen verbalism expresses the most concrete experience. To give examples, a Zen master produces his staff before his congregation and declares, You do not call it a staff. What would you call it? Someone comes out of the audience, takes the master's staff away from him, breaks it into two and throws it down. All this is the outcome of the master's illogical announcement. Another master holding up his staff says, If you have one, I give you mine. If you have none, I will take it away from you. There is no rationalism in this. Still another master once gave this sermon. When you know what this staff is, you know all. You have finished the study of Zen. Without further remark, he left the hall. This is what I call Zen verbalism. The philosophy of Zen comes out of it. The philosophy, however, is not concerned to elucidate all these verbal riddles, but to reach the mind itself, which, as it were, exudes or secretes them as naturally, as inevitably, as the clouds rise from the mountain peaks. What concerns us here is not the substance thus exuded or secreted, that is, words or language, but as something hovering around there, though we cannot exactly locate it and say here. To call it the mind is far from the fact of experience. It is an unnameable X. It is no abstraction. It is concrete enough and direct, as the eye sees the sun is. But it is not to be subsumed in the categories of linguistics. As soon as we try to do this, it disappears. The Buddhists, therefore, call it the unattainable, the ungraspable. It is for this reason that a staff is a staff and at the same time not a staff, or that a staff is a staff just because it is not a staff. The word is not to be detached from the thing, or the fact, or the experience. The Zen masters have the saying, examine the living words and not the dead ones. The dead ones are those that no longer pass directly and concretely and intimately on to the experience. They are conceptualized. 
They are cut off from the living roots. They have ceased then to stir up my being from within, from itself. They are no more what the masters would call the one word, which when understood leads immediately to the understanding of hundreds of thousands of other words or statements given by the Zen masters. Zen verbalism deals with these living words. The second disciplinary approach to the experience of enlightenment is actional. In a sense, verbalism is also actional as long as it is concrete and personal. But in the actional, what we call the body, according to our sense testimony, is involved. When Rinzai was asked what the essence of Buddhist teaching was, he came right down from his seat and, taking hold of the questioner by the front of his robe, slapped his face and then let him go. The questioner stood there stupefied. The bystanders remarked, Why don't you bow? This woke him from his reverie, and when he was about to make a bow to the master, he had his satori. When Basso, a teacher of the 8th century, took a walk with Hayakujo, one of his attendant monks, he noticed the wild geese flying. He asked, Where are they flying? Hayakujo answered, They are already flown away. Basso turned around and, taking hold of Hayakujo's nose, gave it a twist. Hayakujo cried out, Oh, Master, it hurts! Who says they have flown away, was the Master's retort. This made Hayakujo realize that the Master was not talking at all about the conceptualized geese disappearing far away in the clouds. The Master's purpose was to call Hayakujo's attention to the living goose that moves along with Hayakujo himself not outside but within his person. This person is Rinzai's true man in all nature.